from biking across America with his wife and child in tow, and being in the Army for 40 years, John Gronsky has learned quite a bit about what it takes to be a leader. He shares with us the twists and turns of his incredible life. Stay tuned for his episode. Welcome to the Power of Investing in People podcast. I am your host, Shay Sparks. I have found the secret to transforming trauma into treasure. We start by choosing to invest in ourselves first, and then it overflows onto others. By sharing how we have overcome our obstacles, we ignite a tiny spark of hope, love, connection, and community in other people. And when we ignite that spark, the whole world lights up. And that's the power of investing in people. Just imagine what you could ignite when you invest in yourself first. Welcome to the Power of Investing in People podcast. Today, my guest is the incredible John Gronsky. Welcome to the show, John. Shay, it is great to be a guest of yours. Thank you so much for having me. And I just want to say thank you to Shay Spears for introducing us just a little over a week ago and just had such a great conversation. I knew he had to be on the show. So thanks, Chase, for that introduction. (laughs) Chase is a great guy. Yeah. And I'm seriously, I think I need to, I know I need to have him on the show too. So I appreciate his, his uh, support. So for those of you who don't know, John is a major general. John Gronsky is the much sought after public speaker and leadership seminar facilitator. He is the author of the right of our lives lesson on life, leadership, and love. John retired from the Army in 2019 after 40 years of service on active duty and in the Pennsylvania National Guard. He is a decorated combat veteran as a brigade commander. He led over 5,000 American troops in Ramadi, Iraq in 2005 and 2006. He also commanded the 28th Infantry Division from 2012 to 2016 and served as a deputy commanding general for the U.S. Army Europe, headquartered in Weisbaden, Germany, from 2016 to 19. Wow, that's a mouthful. (laughs) Wow, you've done a lot. In the civilian sector, John has worked as a management consultant for Greencastle Associates Consulting, where he led diverse groups implementing large and complex projects. Currently, He is the CEO of Leader Grove LLC, a leadership consulting firm. You can find out more about John on his website, johngronsky.com. So thank you very much, John, for being here. It is an honor to have you, and thank you for all, for everything that you've done serving our country. Yeah, well, Shay, thank you for saying that. I'm just looking forward to our conversation today. I appreciate that. So I always like to start off with the first question, um, since it is the power of investing in people. What does investing in people mean to you? Yeah, I think investing in people is, is everything. I mean, if you look at any endeavor, any any endeavor at all, it's really all about teamwork. And 
You know, a leader cannot be successful unless he has good teammates uh, around him or her. And so investing in people is really all about investing in the, uh, the goals of the organization. And, uh, one of my favorite, uh, Bible verses is Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron. So one person sharpens another. And to me, that, that proverb is all about investing in people, all about, uh, how as we work together, we make each other stronger. And that's what investing in people is all about as far as I'm concerned. Mm, yes, I love that. And it's funny you mentioned that my episode ago, I believe it was the last episode I did. Um, I interviewed Rocky Lavani and he also had a rock, uh, iron sharpens iron. And then he said, because it provides sparks and heat, you have to be willing to accept the sparks and the heat. And so what are your thoughts yep. on that? Well, I, I think, I think leaders need to uh, be willing to make themselves vulnerable. Yeah. And, and by that, I mean, I, I mean that in a couple of different ways. First of all, it's making yourself accessible to those people around you that, that you lead. I mean, help, helping them understand that you're a human being too. You're not just a leader. You're also a human being. You have emotions, you have feelings and, and I think when you share yourself with other people, other people are more prone to, to uh, share themselves with you. And I think that's very important because those connections are extremely important. And another thing about vulnerability, you know, if you're going to lead any organization, uh, whether it be a family unit, a business, whatever, you know, you've got to be willing to put yourself out there. Uh, you've got to be willing to be true to your principles. Uh, even in tough times, you have to be willing to be true to your principles even if you think other people may not agree with you at times. Uh, so that to me, that's what vulnerability is all about. Mm, I'm so glad that you brought up vulnerability. And I completely, completely 100% agree with you. So many times, I think, especially as um, human beings, we think vulnerability means being weak if we're vulnerable with another person. And actually, I always say the more vulnerable you are, the more confidence you actually gain. And you talked about uh, being accessible as a leader. And I'm just, you know, thinking about my own life. How many times leaders have said, well, I have an open door policy, but then they really don't. They have that door closed. <laughs> and I think being absolutely what you said was uh, being accessible is not a bad thing. It is literally just developing the other person developing that relationship with that other person yeah you know it's it's interesting i'm actually reading a book about baron von steuben right now and you know baron von steuben uh was very key to developing the uh continental army during the revolutionary war mm. and one of the things that kind of set him apart from other uh american officers serving in the continental army at the time is Von Steuben was willing to get down there with the troops and talk to the troops at their level, ask them how, how things were, you know, ask them how, how their chow was, ask them how their living conditions were, ask them how the training uh, was going, you know, those type of things. And that's really what the U.S. Army has, has evolved into is, is officers and NCOs having exactly that attitude to be there with the troops gain an understanding of, of, of what the, the men and women are, are thinking and then helping to remove obstacles from their path so they could do their job. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I think that is just so key that, that leaders make themselves accessible. Uh, and, and that means 
when somebody comes in to talk to you, you know, putting your cell phone away, you know, getting, yeah. getting it out of sight, you know, closing the door, you know, sitting down, paying full attention to people because, uh, you know, a lot of leaders will, as you mentioned, will say they're accessible, but then when you go in to talk, they've got three other things that they're multitasking right. on while you're trying to talk to them. And, and that really, uh, is not the way to do it. Yeah. I love that you said. You know, when you, they do come in the door, you sit down and, and you just be fully present with them instead of worrying about, you know, cause there's literally all these other things that could be going on. Yeah. And so you just be present with the person that's in front of you. Absolutely. You have to, you have to do that. You have to work at it. Yeah. You know, and you have to consciously think about, uh, you know, giving those people that you're talking to all the time at that, at that, uh, moment that you're talking to them. Yeah. So as a speaker, do you go into corporate America and kind of help them really um, facilitate their own leadership style, kind of what you have learned from all your years of serving? Yeah, you know, you have to be authentic. And, you know, you could you could look at other leaders and you could, uh, you know, seek to to emulate some of their attributes, but you have to do it in a very authentic way. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if there's somebody, you know, who's, who's, you know, very outgoing, very energetic, uh, you know, that may not be you and that's okay. Right. You know, so you've got to be yourself, but you know, you've, you've got to strive to take on certain attributes, but do it in your, your own way. So when I, when I go in there to speak to organizations and when I do some one-on-one coaching with, with executives, I always encourage them to, uh, you know, seek to take uh, the best attributes from from good leaders that they've worked with or good leaders that they've that they've read about. But they really have to be themselves. They really have to be authentic because people that you work with will be able to see through that. If you're being phony, if you're being somebody who you're not, people are going to see through that. And that really uh, doesn't do anything to cultivate the trust one needs to cultivate in an organization. Man, you've, you've hit on some really great nuggets right there, being authentic and building trust and being vulnerable. Is there advice that you would give to um, a leader right now in corporate America that is struggling in the time that we're recording this, which is during the um, COVID-19 pandemic? Is there something that you would get to... Um, Tell them how to lead going forward from this. Yeah, I think transparency is extremely important at this time. People need to be very truthful about the situation at hand. Uh, you know, people need to know the truth. Uh, and, you know, uh, most people could take it, you know, mm-hmm. uh, even if the truth isn't so good. Uh, so I think being transparent, uh, letting people know what you know, uh, not trying to make anything up. Obviously, you've, you've got to be positive. You've got to be hopeful. I think that's important. But you still have to be pragmatic. You kind of have to lay it out there for people so uh, the folks understand, you know, what their options are. And nobody can predict the future. Uh, so I think the big thing is just letting people know what you know and, and not giving them some pie-in-the-sky stuff that, uh, you know, you're just making stuff up. I mean, you, have, you really have to be transparent and truthful with people right now. Gosh, John, this is why we're friends. <laughs> There is just, oh my gosh, so many things that I believe in too, as far as one, being authentic, being vulnerable, being accessible as a leader. Also, you know, being transparent. I think we go through society just learning or believing what we hear. And there's this whole other key component that most people don't talk about. And it's, it's honesty. It's building that trust. It's really saying, hey, you know what? 
I have no idea what's going on going forward. Like it's literally a day by day basis on how we can plan this out. Mm -hmm. And if you said that to your entire team, you know, your city, your county, whatever, things would go, you would build that trust. You would build that rapport and go, got it. You don't know either. We don't know either, you know, Mm -hmm. and it kind of like almost builds um, a loyalty that because you've been transparent more people are willing to follow you as the leader and to really just build rapport and really to trust your direction on where you're going to go next. Yeah, you, you know, Shay, but with all that said, leaders still have to be willing to make decisions yes. with less than perfect information. You know, the information that we have right now is imperfect, but really that's the way the world is. And, and most in most situations, leaders are not going to have 100% of the information before making a decision. So you have to be courageous enough to make decisions with less than perfect information and then be willing to pivot a little bit if you need mm. to or call an audible if you need to as, as you move forward. But uh, doing nothing is a decision itself. And sometimes sometimes that's the right decision. But more often than not, leaders need to take some type of action. And there's a favorite quote of mine. I can't remember who said it, uh, but, but the quote goes something like, like this, leaders dispel uncertainty through action. Mm. So, you know, in order to dispel uncertainty, you've got to take some type of action. So at least the people in in your organization feel like they have a way to to move forward. And I think that's important. So you mentioned waiting a little bit ago and doing nothing. I'm going to kind of pivot that since you mentioned pivot and ask, is waiting an action? Yes. I mean, in some cases it could be. In some cases, not making a decision is a decision in itself. Yeah. And, and there's something in the, in the army we used to call tactical patience. Mm. And that means that, you know, we're, we're taught as, as young leaders in the army that, hey, you've got to make a decision. You've got to make quick decisions. Mm-hmm. But as you gain maturity as, as a leader, you learn that sometimes you do have to make a quick decision, but then you have to have the wisdom to know that in other situations, you could use a little bit of tactical patience. You could give things a little bit more time to develop before you make that decision. I think that really just comes with experience mm-hmm. and, and with the wisdom one gains as they've, you know, uh, made decisions or have worked through various situations as a young leader. You get more wisdom as you become a little bit more experienced. Absolutely. And you're saying the word experience and so many people like to word the word, use the word mistakes. I think everything is a learning experience. I know that you've written this book, so tell us about an experience that you've had where you were really like, wait, I'm the leader. I have to step up here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the book you're referring to is, is my book, The Ride of Our Lives, Lessons on Life, Leadership, and Love. And yeah. it's about a, a period of my life back in 1983 uh, where I, I went on a cross-country bicycle trip with my wife, Bertie, and our 15-month-old son. 15 months, folks, not 15 years. When I first heard him tell this story, I was like, 15 years, right? And he's like, no, 15 months. So but I'm going to stop you there and just ask, so was there some sort of like a car seat that went on the back of a bike for that? No, actually, uh, it was a bicycle trailer. A bicycle trailer? Okay. Yeah, yeah. so I I pulled my 15-month-old son, Stephen, Across the United States, over four thousand miles, three months on the road wow. in, in a bicycle trailer, and uh, it was just a listen. There were a lot of rewards that came with that experience. I mean, traveling across the country 
as, as a family was a great reward. But of course, there were a lot of challenges that came with that experience uh, as well. And, uh, you know, we, we had, uh, fantastic lessons that we learned along the way. I think you, you, uh, the question was, you know, what type of decisions that I have to make, uh, you know, through the course of that, that three months on, on that very unique adventure. Yeah. And, uh, first of all, I would, I would say big thing. One of the lessons I learned was the importance of setting goals. Yeah. You know, when we set the goal, we, we left Washington state on our way to Northeastern Pennsylvania. We knew it was going to be with the route we were taking, it was going to be over 4,000 miles. We knew it was going to take at least three months, but we had this goal of reaching Northeastern Pennsylvania. And there was not one day in that three months that we wavered from that goal. It was mm. never, uh, never a thought of, of, of quitting. Uh, and then, Every morning when we woke up, we would set a smaller intermediate goal of, hey, maybe, you know, we want to make 60 miles that day or 90 miles, whatever the case might be, a certain town we wanted to get to. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess the lesson is you've got to set those goals and then set the, those intermediate goals. You've got to take that first step, but then you have to have the resiliency to see the, the following steps through after that first step. Uh, because, uh, you know, it's, it's all about, uh, staying with it. It's all about knowing some days might be bad days, but mm-hmm. that doesn't mean the whole endeavor is going to be bad. You know, I heard somebody mention once that there's no such thing as a bad day, only bad moments. And, that, and that's probably true. Yeah. So you have to have that sense of positivity, uh, have that goal setting attitude and, and just have that belief that you're going to reach that goal. So I have so many questions. Um, like I said, I've heard uh, your interview on um, one of my friends, uh, Joe Crane, the Veterans on the Move. And you were literally a veteran on the move during <laughs> biking, bicycling, yeah. not motorbiking, bicycling across America. So did you just like wake up one day and go, okay, here's the day we're going to do it? Or did you like really take your time and plan it out, train? Because like you said, you just said you had a goal of either biking 60 miles or 90 miles. Did you take days off? Like I have lots of questions around this whole trip. Yeah. First first of all, we decided we were going to make the trip probably, I mean, really decided, like no kidding, we're going to do this thing about six months before the trip. So we made, we began the trip in May of 1983. Mm-hmm. And we really made the firm decision. I think it was that December or January that we made the firm decision. Hey, we're going to do this. So from that point on, you know, we tried to uh, engage in a, in a good physical fitness regimen uh, as much as we could. But, you know, my wife was working, I was working. Uh, so we had our, our baby. So, you know, we didn't just have eight hours a day to work out, Right. you know, we had to try to try to build it in, uh, read as much as we could. Again, this was the days before the internet. So you right. could just Google something, right. you know, and you had to really do find some books, <laughs> find books, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and find magazines and, and, and read up on it and, and, uh, just try to learn from other people who had done it before, but didn't find anything about anybody doing it with a, with a, a baby. A baby. So we, yeah. So we were kind of on our own on, on that one for the most part. But, uh, again, we, we just had to prepare by, by equipment, uh, that, that we thought we would need. You know, we had a two man backpacking tent, two sleeping bags, mm. other gear that one would need to camp out, you know, and, and travel like that for three months. So yeah, there was a lot of preparation involved for sure. Yeah. And that, and that's another thing, you know, you set a goal and, and you have a belief in that goal, but it takes hard work. It takes preparation. Mm-hmm. These things just don't happen because you come up with a goal and, and have a belief. There's this point in time 
where you've got to work hard during the preparation phase in order in order to ultimately execute on that goal and complete that goal. No substitute for hard work. Absolutely. And you just touched on something I I want to circle back around and, and about goals. But however, before we do that, I really want to so I'm still curious about this trip. Yeah. <laughs> so I just want the people to listening to understand that in 1983, this was not Google Maps on your phone days. So did you, you had, we had paper maps that you had to unfold for each state. So did you, or they had an atlas. So did you have a big stack of maps or did you have an atlas and planned out your route or did you just kind of wing it? No, no, we, we, we didn't wing it. Uh, we, we did have maps. Now we didn't have the maps for the entire trip with us. We would get maps as we needed them. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, state maps and that, and that type of thing, which were again, 83, they were more accessible back then than they probably are today because right. everything is digital today. Right. Uh, so that, it wasn't that hard. There was also an organization known as Bike Centennial, which kind of created mm. a, a route from Astoria, Oregon to Virginia for the, Bicentennial in 1976. Hmm. So it wasn't a bike trail. It was just a suggested route, you know, that you could travel across the United States. And I'd say we spent about 50% of the time on on that route. The other 50% of the time, we just looked at maps and determined what the best route seemed to be to us at that time. And then we would bump into other uh, cross-country cyclists who were out there, maybe coming Hmm. the opposite direction. So we would ask them, hey, what do you think? You know, what, what do you think is a, a, a good route for, for us to take? And if you're, cro- if you're bicycling across the United States, the best people to ask for route information are other cyclists. Sure. You know, because if, if you ask somebody who's just like driving in a car, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of immune to steep hills, mm, you know. Sure. <laughs> Another cyclist will be able to kind of give you a better feel for what, what the terrain is like. Absolutely. And of course, I'm thinking, you know, this was also not something that you would look on a map and go, yeah, I'll just take interstate, whatever, across whatever state. I'm assuming you stayed off of the interstates. Yeah, we actually were on the interstate uh, briefly Mm. in in Wyoming. Uh, The the shoulder was very wide there. Uh, Not many exits. It it wasn't a bad uh, route to be on the interstate stay there but i think the lesson of what i just said because i think you know you know your your podcast is all about lessons for people and i I think the lesson is you've got to find the right people to ask advice from Mm. you know like i said we asked advice from other cyclists rather than people who didn't cycle Mm -hmm. uh, because they were a little bit more attuned to the terrain so i think as we go through life and as we try to negotiate various situations as leaders or entrepreneurs, you know, we have to find the right people to bring into our network and ask questions of. Uh, so I, I think that that is key to, to just think of things in that way. If you, if, if you want to do a particular uh, action as an entrepreneur, try to find somebody else to experience that already and, and pick their brain about it. Mm. Love it. Yes, yes, yes. Totally agree with you, which is, like you said, it is about what my my uh, podcast is about. And literally everything that I do, it's about you uh, have an idea or um, a goal and you want to go forward with it. So you need to connect with like-minded people. Absolutely. And, you know, like-minded people, uh, not, to, not to say diversity isn't important, 
you know, because because sometimes it, and, and I've learned this as a leader, too, uh, that, you know, when you have your group of trusted advisors around you, sometimes you have to specifically ask them, hey, tell me why this might not work. You know, you don't want everybody agreeing with you. You know, you may have to force people to think of reasons something might not work so you can mitigate those type of risks, you know, not not. Or to help you make a, you know, the the best decision. Uh, that's that's not to say, you know, you're going to agree with all the naysayers, but you don't want just a bunch of people around you who are going to nod their head and agree with you all the time either. Oh, I agree. In fact, um, the the question I love to ask myself, um, and so it kind of helps me push me in the direction I need to go, is what is it that I don't know that I need to know in order to move forward. And a lot of times that is finding someone who has done something similar or has already gone that path. And I want to know all the things that they did wrong. And so I can learn from it rather than going, Oh yeah, I did this and then this and this, this. No, no, no. I agree. I get, I get, I agree that that worked great for you. And I want to know all the details of what didn't work. Yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's about learning from other people's experiences as well as learning, you know, being able to ask for help. So with that, did you ask for help? I know you said other cyclists, did you ever at a time like had to, you know, wave somebody down because maybe, I don't know, your baby was sick and you need to go to the doctor. Was there anything like medical or any kind of emergencies while you were on the road? Yeah. You know, I just talked to a group of high school students, uh, about 400 high school students, uh, a little over a week ago. And one of the the key lessons I shared with them is you have to be willing to ask for help. Yeah. And, you know, talk about veterans. You know, many of our veterans are struggling with emotional issues. Uh, you know, suicide among the veteran community is, is a very significant issue. So the key is people do have to be strong enough to ask for help. And and people have to understand asking for help is, is not a weakness. Mm-hmm. And to answer your question a little more specifically, you know, there was this one time in Oregon, we were uh, biking down this this steep uh, mountain out after climbing a mountain about 4,700 feet in elevation, coming down a seven-mile descent. And as we were just about down to the bottom of that mountain, it was a rural road. We hadn't seen any cars on this road for at least 40 minutes. Pickup truck coming the other way, waved us down. I, I kept going, uh, but my wife stopped. The guy in the pickup truck said to her, hey, there's a puddle in the middle of the road. Keep going. She oh. came down and... Uh, trying to figure out what did this guy mean a puddle you know what's that all about and it was the rain it, it had been raining but it, the rain stopped there was mist coming off the road we're staring down through the mist we see this image coming at us and as it was getting closer and closer we realized it was a bull oh my a, a bull so the guy didn't say puddle he said bull my my wife misheard him oh so anyway this this runaway bull is getting closer to us it stops starts pawing at the ground blowing steam out its nose and I thought that only happened in cartoons. Right. But this was a serious situation. So yeah. we're trying to figure out how we're going to escape out of nowhere. This car comes down the mountain behind us, stops. Guy rolls down his window, looked like a farmer, flannel shirt, coveralls. He said, listen, he goes, I'm going to, I'm going to run interference for you guys. He goes, you keep your bikes to the left of my car. I'm going to keep the bull to the right of my car. We're going to drive at about 10 miles an hour. We're going to go at least a quarter mile, half mile down the road until we get past the bull. That's exactly what we did. Mm. Uh, so talk about 
being willing to accept help when you need it. Right. And, and I really believe divine intervention, <laughs> uh, you know, played, played a role that day. Absolutely. Uh, I was just going to say that. So thank you for saying that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a rural road, hadn't seen anybody for 40, 45 minutes. And then at the right moment, this guy comes down and he stops. He could have kept on going. Right. Right. You know, and, and he, he was aware enough to know he, we needed help and we were aware enough to accept this help. And uh, I'll never forget that day. That was probably the uh, closest we came to really any type of danger during the whole trip. And right at the right moment, uh, higher power mm -hmm. sent somebody down to uh, help us. And mm -hmm. thank God we were willing to accept that help. So, yes, you, you do have to be willing to accept help at times. Yeah. Gosh, what a beautiful story. I'm so glad you mentioned that. So just interesting question that's coming to my head right now is, so have you been since then a divine intervention for someone else? Ah, that's a great question. Maybe. I remember uh, when I was deployed over to Europe after 9-11. This wasn't Iraq. This was Europe. We were doing a force protection mission there. Mm -hmm. We had a soldier who got drunk, got into some trouble, got court-martialed, got put in the stockade up in Mannheim, Germany. And I woke up, and I, I was traveling all over. Europe to see our soldiers who were deployed across four different countries doing this force protection mission for U.S. Uh, installations there. Christmas morning, I wake up and I say to my driver, we're going to drive up to Mannheim about an hour and a half north. I wanted to visit the soldier who was in the stockade. Mm -hmm. And so uh, walk into, uh, you know, the Mannheim stockade, tell the guards I wanted to visit this soldier. I was a colonel. They weren't going to turn me down, of course. Mm -hmm. And when this soldier came out to see me, he was just blown away because he just, uh, he was really taken by the fact that here was Christmas Day. I took the opportunity to come, come and visit him. And I told him, I said, Hey, you made a mistake. You screwed up, but you're still one of my soldiers. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I just wanted to check and see how you were doing. So perhaps he thought that was divine intervention. I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I, I think. Like many other soldiers, I, you know, I just try to do my best to help other people. I'm not unusual uh, in that regard because that's what the military teaches us. Mm -hmm. Whether we're a soldier, Marine, sailor, airman, whatever, that's kind of how we're trained in the in the military is to take care of our our buddies. So, uh, you know, that that's a great question. Have I ever provided divine intervention? Hopefully, I have, yeah. uh, and I would I would like to think I have at some points. Wow. So. I, I literally have tears in my eyes right now. What a beautiful story. And it's why I asked that story or why I asked that question is really, to me, this is what power of investing in people is about. Someone invested in you, you invested in yourself and you keep paying it forward. Yeah. Right. It just naturally overflows. It's not a conscious thought and decision. It just automatically keeps happening. And yeah. you mentioned the soldiers. I came from a farming uh, community and small town community where you helped your neighbors. You know, it was love your neighbor as yourself growing up. And, you know, you if somebody had their tractor broke down in the in the field, my dad was the first one to go. He would put our stuff to the side and take off and help someone else. And that has been my mentality all all my life. That's how I grew up. My dad was also um, drafted into Korea right before the Vietnam War. So he was also in the army as well. However, I think him being a family of farmers and entrepreneurs, I think he grew up with that same mentality of 
you know, you help other people and eventually it'll come back to you, even though you don't do it for that reason. It just yep. naturally, that's the progression of the law of attraction, uh, where you put you so, whatever you want to call it. That's the natural progression of what happens. And that's why I really wanted to have these kind of conversations because depending on um, how you grew up, you might not have learned those lessons. You might not have learned that if you invest in yourself and it automatically overflows by helping another person, it will come back to you. And that's why it's okay to one, help someone else. And two, it's okay to ask for help. So I, I'm glad that you talked about the asking for help because that goes back to our vulnerability piece in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Shai, I, I agree with everything you said. You know, I call it karma. Yeah, you know, good, absolutely. You, put out, you know, the good you put out will come back to you in some way. It might be a completely different way, different path. It'll come back to you. It may not even be back from that same person. It doesn't matter. Uh, and and that's why I think, you know, relationships, and you mentioned investing in other people, relationships are so important. And the thing with relationships, they don't need to be transactional. I right. think they need to be transformational. Mm. Uh, you know, people need to mm. kind of, you know, have this relationship with one another where it's not about tit for tat. I'm going to do something for you. So now you do something for me. It's, it's hey, I'm going to help you. And hopefully you're going to help somebody else. And then... As you go around that circle, somebody else might be helping me. Uh, but that, that, that's how we need to think about leading. I yes. think we need to be transformational leaders, not transactional leaders for the most part. Whew. And, and yes. uh, I, I really think that helps organizations really grow. I think it helps people grow within an organization. Boom, mic drop. <laughs> that's brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And I, that is definitely uh, something that, I'm going to write down on the intro. It is not transactional. It's transformational. Wow. I'm just thinking about how, like, let's just take everything we've talked about out of content, like completely put it away and talk about networking and a networking event. You're there. Most times people are there to have a hidden agenda or have an agenda, a motive of I'm going to sell you and you're going to sell me. And I decided many years ago that I was going to go to networking events just to collect information and connect with people. Mm -hmm. Because to me, that's what network, real networking is. Because I don't know that I'm going to meet somebody that down the road I need to introduce to somebody else because they have that, that one thing that this other person needs. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if you could show... Uh, you know, just that you're interested in people. I think, I think that goes, goes a very long way. And, you know, it's almost like reading a, a novel, you know, you're, you're not reading some type of technical book to get something out of it. You're reading a novel just to kind of broaden your, the way you think, you know, mm-hmm. uh, just, just be a little bit more open-minded about things. And I think that that's a good way, a good attitude to have when you go to a networking event. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes you're going to a networking event. You know, there's somebody specific that's going to be there. That's going to, that, that you, that you do have something valuable to offer that person. And you want to be able to share that with that person. I, I get that. Mm-hmm. You know, some networking events are, you have those type of goals, but then at other events, you know, you're just going there to give of yourself to other people and hopefully meet some people who could uh, provide you some insight on different things. And, and you grow that way. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. 
Wow. You have provided us with so much stuff. I, I hope people are taking notes. So tell us, John, of all the things that you have done with being in Europe, being, uh, you know, stationed in Europe and Iraq and, and being here and bicycling with your family, what do you want to be remembered for? What would be your legacy? Oh, wow. That, that is a tough question. I, you know, I, I'm a little bit too humble to be thinking about legacies, but, but honestly, uh, I guess if people just think of me that, hey, I was somebody who tried to help other people when I could, I think that's, that's a pretty good legacy. I think if I was thought of as a role model for my, my children and my grandchildren, that would be a nice legacy. So mm. I, I think, I think, you know, the question you ask is important though. I think per, perhaps maybe I should think a little bit more about that and other people should. You know, a little exercise I've done when conducting leadership seminars and, and talks in, in different organizations has been, hey, if you were at your retirement uh, ceremony yeah. and you wanted somebody to say something about you, you know, as, as you're at this retirement ceremony, uh, what would you want people to be saying about you? And, you know, you should probably write those things down and then try to act upon those things. So it's, it's, it's a fair question you asked. And, and I do think people need to think about how do I want to be remembered and then write those things down and then start to act on those things. So you could be remembered that way. Absolutely. Uh, I just had co-authored my own um, book. And one of the questions I put in there is, what do you want people to say at your hundredth birthday about you? Yeah. Right. Like, what have you accomplished? What kind of person were you? And I absolutely agree. I had to, I took a self-development seminar back when I was 21 and we had to do that exercise and I was blown away. And yet I really feel like it set the stage for my whole life. Like I just started living life from a, from a concept of how do I want to show up in the world rather than what, what is happening to me and how can I react to it? Yeah. 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 You want to be, uh, more proactive in the way you act and right. treat others rather than be reactive. Exactly. For sure. I think that's a, a good attitude to have. Exactly. So yeah. speaking of books, John, where can people get your book? Where can they connect with you? What social media platforms are you on? Yeah. Th thanks for asking. Again, the, the book is the right of our lives, lessons on life, leadership and love. Amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com. I'm on uh, social media. You know, I'm, I'm on Twitter at JL Gronsky. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, I'm on Instagram, on Facebook, and I have my website. I think you might have mentioned it, johngronsky.com. So uh, probably if you go to johngronsky.com on my website, you'll be able to see some of those other channels there too. And there's a lot of, I think, useful information on my website that people could take away for free in order to help them grow to be a, a better leader too. So I hope uh, people will check that website out when they have an opportunity. Yes, and he's also an amazing speaker, as you can tell. He's really extremely passionate about what he's talking about and the leadership that he is portraying. So I love that you also are a speaker as well. Thanks, Jay. Well, John, it has been a, a pleasure and honor to have you here. And um, before we go, I always like to leave with this last question. What phrase, scripture, or mantra are you living by right now? I'd have to say the one I already mentioned, uh, Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen: as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And that's all about trying to re, uh, conduct relationships with people that could help you become stronger, but then also 
you uh, seek out other people who you think you might be able to help to become stronger as well. So it goes both ways. And that's really the, uh, the, the Bible verse, the mantra that I, I try to live by. Mm, I love it. And I'm so glad that Chase introduced us because I'm, I'm stronger just from knowing you. So I, I appreciate your uh, time to take, you know, your busy schedule to be with us today. Jay, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for everything you do to get these important messages out to, to many people. So thanks. Thanks for doing what you do. Thank you. Are you looking for an inspiring and energetic speaker or host for your special event? Do you wish to have more confidence, more love, and more accepting of yourself? And you're curious about how to work with me one-on-one? Or are you looking for a brainstorming and visionary consultant on how to grow your business? When your answer is yes then I invite you to send me an email at heyshay at shaysparks.com. That's H-E-Y-S-H-A at S-H-A-S-P-A-R-K-S dot com. Looking forward to hearing from you. being a part of our show and it's people like you that make this show possible so we hope that you know you are appreciated don't forget to subscribe comment and share this podcast and when you want to continue the fun and conversation join my official community on the Shea Sparks Facebook page that's S-H-A-S-P-A-R-K-S on Facebook looking forward to connecting with you May your day be filled with the sparks of hope that ignites you to invest in yourself and the people around you. Why, you may ask? Because you are worth it.